Welcome to Winesplaining, the podcast that peels back the journeys of the women shaping the wine business. I'm Coley Denhon, and I'm excited to present today's guest, Megan Bell. First and foremost, Megan is rad. Her methods are steeped in ancient traditions, yet she continues to trailblaze, break barriers, and march to the beat of her own drum. She adapts to what nature gives us, while at the same time advocates for change, especially in farming practices, to make this planet better and possibly fix some of the damage the commercial wine industry has inflicted. I am lucky enough to have the supreme bragging rights of being one of the first people to carry her first-ever vintage of Margins wine, a Chenin Blanc that I have gone on record as saying is one of the best domestic Chenins out there. Megan was also the first winemaker we did an event at Vinovore with, so we have a few firsts together. We're kind of like high school sweethearts, so to speak. Needless to say, I'm super excited to welcome Megan Bell to Winesplaining. Thanks, Coley. <laughs> so I can't wait to learn even more about your life and career. But before we get into all that, uh, you're here in Los Angeles uh, for the wine, raw wine fair. Uh, but also there's a movie screening uh, for your film. Uh, so how does it feel to be a big Hollywood movie star? <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to the premiere of the film, which was in San Rafael. <laughs> Um, and that's the only time I've seen it. I've seen it so far, so I'm excited to see it again. Uh, I'm just one character. Uh, the story follows really four of us, um, with a couple other winemakers on the side. Uh, and it's mostly about like climate change and, um, following our careers during harvest and the worst fire season on record up till then in 2020. Um, Watching the movie is really hard for me because 2020 was an extremely difficult year for me. So it's kind of like watching a different person. (laughs) So much has changed since then. But um, it feels good to be able to share that part of the, you know, the realistic perspective of the the wine growers and winemakers story. Cool, cool. So your head hasn't gotten too big yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, not yet. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's start at the beginning. Um, Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Um, I'm sort of an only child. Uh, I grew up in the, we called it like the East East Bay. So um, the suburbs uh, in Livermore. Um, My dad had kids from his first marriage. His wife passed away. So I have two way older half-brothers um but they had moved out of the house by the time I was like six or seven so I mostly grew up as the only child which is good because I was a strange kid (laughs) I feel like I'm still a pretty strange adult but um I definitely was a loner and um I think not having like sibling competition with a sibling who was potentially like a people pleaser, like a really cool person was really good for me. I could just sort of be in my own imaginary world all the time. And that's usually what I was doing. My parents gave me like a lot of leeway um, to make my own decisions from an early age, which I feel like really impacted who I am now. I didn't have like really set rules or anything. I just, I was always a, like a good self-regulator and just did things that I needed to do. And so they never really imposed like restrictions or rules on me as long as I like did good in school and cleaned the room and sometimes like emptied the dishwasher and vacuumed. (laughs) They were like, okay, do whatever you want. Um, Which, which was really uh, important. I think for coming to a side of an industry that is, kind of a creative haven. Yeah, definitely. So when you were, you know, in your imaginary world, so to speak, what were you dreaming of being when you grew up? Well, first and foremost, I really wanted to be an orphan. (laughs) (laughs) Because, uh, because like all of these great, 
you know, childhood story figures. They're like, you know, it's like a trope of children's literature of like, how do you get to have adventures? You have no guardians. They're dead. <laughs> um, so like, that's kind of what I imagined. I was like, hey, well, when I'm an orphan, these are all the things that I'll do. Um, and then eventually when I was like, uh, I guess I need it to work one day so I'll be a veterinarian because I have had a lifelong obsession with cats. <laughs> hey, I mean, I have a, a group chat with my friends called Cats, Cats, Cats <laughs> where we share all of our cat, cat photos so I can relate. I can also relate to the orphan thing too. I feel like I also wanted to just kind of like be sent off to boarding school and like left alone so I get the, I get the adventure yeah. part of that. So yeah. and then when I was a little older, like um like even in college, I never really thought that I would need money or like a career for money. Someone had told me that there was like a traveling band of people in Alaska that they thought I would be a good fit in when I was like nineteen. And I think I just kept that in the back of my head until I graduated when I was, like, 21. And I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to go to Alaska and join that. those people. What should I do? <laughs> I mean, what were you studying in college? I don't think well, there's, like, a nomad. <laughs> I was degree. studying wine chemistry. Okay. <laughs> conveniently. Um, and I think that's why I went so hard into the wine industry right after I got out of college. It was because... Um, my other plan was pretty um, unrealistic. So I just, yeah, started working in wine harvest internships right away, with right after school with no breaks or anything. Which school were you at at the time? I was at Davis. Okay, so um, this was during UC Davis. So you, you made an intentional, you know, thought yes. to, to study wine, but you didn't think that you'd be a winemaker. You thought no. you'd just join some people in Alaska yeah (laughs) okay okay yeah I wanted to like live outside and like live in I lived in a a co-op or sort of a commune in college and I had a bunch of other groups that I was part of outside of college that were like that like long-term backpacking stuff where you live outside for a couple months and I just figured that would continue into my adult life (laughs) I never really realized that that wasn't (laughs) that life was gonna change and I would need, like, stability in a career. <laughs> Very interesting. So uh, what was the culture like at UC Davis? I mean, was it really supportive? I mean, obviously there was a lot of people there that actually, you know, were intending to be winemakers. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, I was in the program, and I was actually there at the same time as Martha and a bunch of other people that own natural wine wineries on the West Coast now. But, um, yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't really interested in that at all. I was interested in sitting on the porch of the co-ops. Um, so that's what I, my focus was. I was studying wine, but I was really studying like how to interact with other people because I think I did have such a solitary childhood and it took me a, like I never had like a real best friend until college. It took me a long time to be able to learn how to connect with people. And once I found it, I felt, like you're saying, like just, like, super supported in this community of, like, you know, f- really, really intelligent people who were also anarchists and free thinkers and, like, a, you know, very politically active and early members of, like, the kind of how we think of the queer community right now that was just kind of starting around that time um, to have, like, a real impact on certain policies um so that was that was really what I did in college but I also happened to get a degree in viticulture and enology <laughs> and a minor in English <laughs> but that was secondary and a second minor in sitting on the porch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so you graduate from UC Davis you're Coming to the realization that you are not going to Alaska so you said you jumped right into internships yeah, I I had been working with kids um, in like like nature science camps and stuff, and I I thought that I might keep doing that because that more allowed me to have the lifestyle that I imagined. Um, but then I realized that I I did in fact want money, 
And I had a bunch of friends that were working in outdoor education and, and watching them being like, I don't want to, like, I just don't want to live there <laughs> um, or that way. So, and like, I've always been really a logistical thinker of, well, besides being unrealistic about <laughs> the roving Alaskan folks. Um, but just like, uh, working in outdoor ed probably isn't going to lead anywhere. Um, but if I try this wine thing, I'll start at the beginning and who knows where it will go. So I decided to not work in outdoor education anymore and then to get my first internship during harvest, uh, which I did in Napa, uh, just because I didn't really know any better. I was al already the type of person <laughs> that I am now in terms of um, you know, I was really into organic food and organic gardening and gleaning and just sustainable living in, in all forms. But I didn't know, like like so many people who drink wine, I didn't realize that there was a whole other sector of wine that I would be a really good fit for. Um, that came later. So I just went to work in Napa, a very like high end, typical Napa winery. And I was a horrible fit. <laughs> just... Yeah. Did you just like get there and and just see all the machines and and did it kind of rip all the romantic, you know, farming visions um, out of you? I was excited for the machines cuz mm -hmm. I had at the end of college started to realize that I had a real mechanical aptitude that I just didn't know about um growing up as a little girl and a woman, like no one ever put me around tools. Um, or taught me how to use those things early on. So I just didn't know. And then when I started being around them, I just realized that I I was good at it and learned it really fast and also liked it. So that was my favorite part of the Napa job. I really liked what I did. It was the extreme change in community slash relationship structure that was shocking for me to come from this like very tight-knit, supportive really really leftist community and then be dropped in a place like napa where there's you know so much money and um, a lot of sexism and racism and just like thinking that i because i was so young i was 21 when i had that internship i think just like i didn't think people thought like that anymore I thought that that was over because I had been around different types of people. And then I was like, oh, my God, I can't work in I cannot work in this if this is what the wine industry is. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, Napa is, you know, to the outside world considered, you know, the most famous region in California. And I've probably carried less wines throughout my career from Napa than anywhere in the world. <laughs> like, you know, I just I never have wines on my list from Napa, it's very rare. Yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah, I can I can see how that kind of correlates. So where did you go from Napa when you were kind of unhappy? Um, after Napa, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do because I, I felt a little bit screwed. I think a lot of people, um, or at least people of my generation, like millennials really panic when they get out of school. And it's just... It's just not what you thought. You're like, oh, no one cares that I have a degree. No one wants to hire me. Like, I don't matter at all. What am I going to do? Like, so scary. Um, should I keep working in wine? I really didn't like that. But there's nothing else to do. Like, kind of this crisis of options. Like, you can do anything, but you actually can't because you have no experience. So you're going to have to start at the bottom anywhere. <laughs> um, and I really, I felt very overwhelmed by having to make such a important decision. Um, but I, you know, logistically, I was like, okay, well, now I have this experience working in wine. I guess I'll try to work somewhere that aligns a little bit more with my values. So I was unemployed for a long time, like maybe four months or something. Where were you at that time? Um, I was like sort of living with my boyfriend at the time but it wasn't a good circumstance he was like you need to get out and I was like I don't have anywhere to go but I did because I could just go to my parents house but it felt like failure just that early 20s desperation um and then finally I 
I got this job in Oregon, which I did not know if I was going to get. I really, really wanted it. I had found this winery um, just from like random Google searches and I, I knew nothing about it. And they were ready to hire someone basically right away to work in the tasting room and then who could also work in the vineyards and they farmed biodynamically and then also work harvest there. So it'd be like a long term, like six or seven month job. And I was just like waiting and waiting, crossing my fingers for that, not thinking it was going to happen. And then they hired me after not even meeting me in person, which meant so much to me. Um, And that really changed my career. That was like a turning point because I loved that job so much. I worked for Grant uh, Coulter, who at the time was the winemaker at Beaufrere, um, uh, which has since sold to a larger French company. But at the time, it was still like a, a smaller family business. And it was just like exactly where I was supposed to be dropped into. Still like high-end wine, uh, which was my background thus far. Mm-hmm. But they only did native fermentation and, you know, organic and biodynamic farming. So like just closer to where I ended up going. And that was the first time that I worked for a man who was a wonderful boss and had no like preconceived notions about my abilities and um you know wasn't sexist at all and also just wasn't an asshole which a lot of the people in the wine industry and wine production are uh so after that job I was like oh I I can definitely work in this I'm just gonna like kind of get further and further into this sector of wine um so after that I spent uh nine months in New Zealand working a whole bunch of different internships mostly in the vineyards because we don't really get the opportunity in California when you're a young person a young woman especially um to do actual vineyard labor you're just not going to get hired to work on a vineyard crew (laughs) um but in New Zealand just like here, uh, they use foreign labor and their foreign labor is like United States and European people in their 20s. <laughs> so I got to do vineyard labor and, and learn how, how to farm. Um, and then I also worked harvest at a winery there and then I hopped over to France for the rest of that year uh, where I worked in the Loire. Um, just learning about Chenin Blanc for the first time. <laughs> Uh, and then after that year away is when I came back to California. So, I mean, I've heard New Zealand is like gorgeous. And um, how, how do you think those internships really shaped the way that you were starting to think about making wine? Um, <laughs> I think that I have just a very specific way of looking at the world that is really focused on realism and it ends up not being a very positive outlook to other people, but it really works for me because I really rely on um, having realistic expectations about things. So for me, New Zealand is not a good place, (laughs) which no one ever says, but it's incredibly sexist, incredibly racist. Three quarters of the population lives in one city, which is a very progressive city. But then you have the whole rest of the country. And <laughs> that's a very it's sort of like America would be in the 50s, I think. Um, so working there was challenging. I did make some friendships that meant the world to me with wonderfully progressive people. But they were few and far between. And the food sucks. (laughs) So, um, and like I was working the whole time. I was not traveling. I was really there to work and learn. And that, that was my focus the whole time of just like, I need, I know that for whatever I'm going to do in the future, I really need to be the person on the ground doing this labor, learning from a whole bunch of different people. Um, and that took precedent for me over, you know, traveling. I did a little bit, but I worked full time for almost the whole nine months. And what about France? Does France suck too? France? (laughs) I don't know if it sucks because I don't speak French. Um, So 
that was a really lonely time because I don't speak any French. And again, made some really good friends. Of course, there's good, some good people everywhere you go. But that was like, you know, seven or eight weeks of sitting at a table three times a day where everyone around you is talking during meals and you're just sitting there. Um which ended up being a great experience for me because I really learned how to get to know people based on watching their body language. And I had certain people that I didn't like and ones that I liked, even though I basically knew nothing about them. But uh, because I didn't have that information, like it's possible that what people were saying, if I had understood them, I really wouldn't like them. I don't know. I, I don't know at all. But I loved working there. And that's really... Again, that year, which was 2014, that's really what I was focused on. It's like, I don't really care who's around here. Um, I'm here to work and learn. And I loved going to all of the Shannon Blanc vineyards. And we made like 10 or 15 different skews of Shannon, just like so much different styles of the same grape. It was very beautiful and overwhelming. Um, and we had, I lived at the winery and we had like a, we d I didn't get paid, but we had a wine fridge just for us, uh, and that was, like, our payment. We could drink as much as we wanted, and when it was empty, we'd just go refill it, and that was allowed. <laughs> so that was, like, a lot of fun nights just, you know, dancing and playing, um, like, French kind of ring toss-ish games, and I could interact with people that way. Okay, cool. So you were drawing on your UC Davis um, porch uh, degree <laughs> to kind of read people without, without language, just observing. Um, okay, so after France, uh, obviously, I think maybe that's where you picked up your love for Shannon. Uh, you head back to California. Yeah, I came back to California just because I'm from here to my family's house uh, with the intention of working somewhere on the West Coast. I didn't really care where it was gonna be but just logistically I was like well my parents live in the Bay Area still so I'm gonna try to work here around here and but I know I want to be in a super progressive community so I'm gonna try to work in either West Sonoma or Santa Cruz Mountains both of which are really hard places to find a wine job because there's very few wineries in both places and the the wineries that are there uh, especially in Santa Cruz, for the most part, our family runs still. They don't even hire people. It's just the, you know, they're like garage wineries. Um, so it was very challenging to find a job. And that was a really depressing time also. <laughs> Basically my whole 20s. Um, <laughs> of just like, oh, I've gone all over the world. Like I thought I was going to be a great candidate for jobs when I got back and again this feeling of like oh, no one actually cares um, <laughs> but finally I got um, I got a job as the enologist at Bonnie Dune in Santa Cruz um, Nicole Walsh hired me and uh, I, I liked that job because I, I have always liked the wine lab stuff but then it was short-lived because I got laid off three months later because <laughs> they were in the process of um, the beginning of the journey that company's on right now was starting in 2015 when I was there. So I just moved to Santa Cruz. I, like, got my house. I was, got my first job with, like, a 401k and a salary. And I was like, I've done it. Like, I have made it. Uh, and then... You know, one day you go to work and they just shut the door when you're in the lab and say, actually, this is your last day of work. Here's your termination paperwork. Like, goodbye. You're free to go, <laughs> which didn't feel good. Um, but then, like, this this is the only time in my life this has ever happened. Like, I had a job three days later. Okay. So this winery that conveniently was, like, a mile away from where I live was also looking for a full-time seller person and I worked there for almost three years and just kind of worked my way up from being in the cellar to being the assistant winemaker and then by the time I left I was um, running the day-to-day -day operations in the cellar there. What's a cellar person? Oh like a they call it like a cellar master. <laughs> um, it's the person that is doing the work in the winery so like you have like maybe the winemaker who's the person making decisions about what's going to happen. And then you have 
the seller master who is executing those decisions. Um, so that was a really important learning experience for me. And it's one that I think really differentiates me from a lot of people that work in natural wine is, is that a lot of people haven't worked full time in a winery before they start their natural wine label. Um, because you can work harvests and you see you get to learn how to make wine. You certainly know how to do that, but you don't see what happens the rest of the year and how things ebb and flow, especially financially, which can which is really a challenging part of the natural wine industry. Um, so getting to see that for three vintages in a row working full time for that winery was absolutely crucial to being able to start my business um, and being confident that I could go out on my own and actually have it be sustainable eventually, <laughs> you know. Um, so I did my first two vintages at that winery because I, I couldn't, I didn't have the money to like pay for Custom Crush and it was part of my compensation to get to make it there. And then after that, I kind of went on my own and quit my full-time job and just had a bunch of part-time jobs so that I could have like financial uh, slight financial instability, <laughs> kind of, but time freedom to like pursue building like a distribution portfolio, which I knew was what I was going to need to do to be successful. Okay. So you're at this winery. I'm assuming it's a natural winery in Santa Cruz. You're there for three years. So a, a year in, you decide to make your first vintage? Yeah. Okay. And they were obviously cool with you making it there. So what, tell me a little bit about, you know, that decision. Like, uh, I'm, okay, I'm Megan Bell. I'm going to make my own wine, my own wine brand. Like, what was the thought process behind that? The name, um, where did you get the grapes, the style, all of that? Uh, I felt very nervous at the beginning. Um, the winery that I worked at was all native fermentation, but they weren't like natural wine. Like we did a lot of filtering and they used a lot of new oak, just very like classic high-end California wines. Um, so I had never made the type of wine that I was going to attempt to make for margins, but I actually think coming at it from that direction is better than having only worked harvest in natural wineries and then doing it because you don't have... Um, the knowledge or the skills of what like conventional like winemaking cleanliness and practices are and then choose to subtract those when you make your natural wine. Um, instead, you're, you know, if something goes wrong, you don't really know what would be done to fix it in a conventional winery. So you're sort of stuck. Um, so getting, yeah, getting to do that was a privilege but it definitely was nerve-wracking like the first year I was still using cold stabilization because like I thought you had to and for white wine and then like that cold stabilizer thermometer was broken and then it ended up almost freezing the wine the first year and then to get a native fermentation going <laughs> when a wine is so cold is basically impossible. It took like 14 days to start fermenting. And just for context, like normally it will ferment within two or three days. And having it sit there not fermenting is one of the worst things that you can do, basically. But like, I messed up. <laughs> um, and I was like, I don't know what to do. And I had asked like my boss and his friends, like, what would you do? And they're like, just throw Velcarin in it. Like it's necessary, which is like this like very, very intense antimicrobial that is one of the worst things you can put in wine but it was growing like a uh like a floor like a, <laughs> a layer <laughs> on top of the, the surface which when I emptied the tank and got to see what had been growing it was like a thick carpet it was one of the coolest floors I've ever seen <laughs> but that would never happen to me now now that I I know more but I say that just to explain that like it's not like I started margins knowing where I was going or exactly what I was doing I like learned along the way got it where did you what where did you come up with the name margins what does it mean to you well at the very beginning uh, even after Davis I when I left Davis I still only knew the names of like six varietals and 
I had been thinking about that, being like, this is so weird that there's thousands of varietals and I don't know any of them, even though I, like, have a degree in this, I guess. <laughs> um, so I was like, all right, what can I do to show people like me that there's more than just these, you know, wines that we've always heard of? So I decided that I want to focus on lesser known regions and varietals that are, like, quote unquote, on the margin. Uh, nothing too obscure, but everything I make now except Pinot was a type of grape that I had never heard of even when I finished school. So. Awesome. So how did you find that Chenin Blanc that first year? Did you just go buy it? I mean, did you? where did you get it? Um, yeah, I think that's another important distinction between like what I have done and what other people starting natural wine labels have done is I have always felt unworthy in some way or another I would say like like I don't feel unworthy to myself at all but I don't expect anything from other people I don't think I deserve anything um and I think part of that is growing up socialized to be female and part of it is just being a weird person and shy person um so I it didn't even occur to me that I could ask someone that I had known like from Davis to be connected with a grower I was like well I guess I have to do this all on my own um and it's not like I had people like chomping at the bit to help me no one was like I want to take you under my wing and make <laughs> you well known like follow on my coattails at all it was like okay, try your best and maybe people will care maybe one day. But at the beginning, no one's going to care. Um, and that's really how it was. So I emailed like 50 people that grow Shannon. And the way that I found it was just there's a grape crush report that comes out every year that's um, public domain. And I just looked like at the maps where Shannon acreage was and then Googled Shannon in those places and then emailed everyone that came up. And... Three people responded, and they're all in Clarksburg. Um, so I was like, <laughs> I guess I'm making Clarksburg Shannon for the first time. So I went out to Clarksburg in in the winter um, before the first vintage, and I I met those three growers, and I decided to work with um, David Ogilvie of the Wilson Family Vineyards, who I felt like would be um, the most likely person to go in the direction that I was planning on pushing them toward eventually <laughs> without telling them, which was to convert to organics. And I didn't mention that to anybody, but I was like, I'm going to ask for this. And like, who is going to be the most receptive? And it was David. It was David. <laughs> so... You find your Shannon. Uh, at at this point, are you just totally self financed? Oh, um, I I did a Kickstarter in like March of 2016, and my first vintage was vintage 2016. So, um, I just asked for ten thousand dollars, and um, and I chose that number because my friends uh, Meredith and Luke at Statera Sellers in Oregon. Meredith and I were at Davis at the same time. They had also just done a Kickstarter and they put $10,000. So I was like, okay, I guess that's what I'm going to do. Again, there was people I could have asked about that. I never felt like I could, it never even occur, has occurred to me to ask anyone for like advice or like mentorship or anything. It's just like, okay, 10,000 is the number. Um, and then I ended up getting like, I think 14,000 total. And that's what I, made my first vintage on. I did three tons of Clarksburg Shannon, which made eight barrels. Um, and then I just like put all my personal money into margins and kept all the money from the sale of the wines in there and just like kept slowly growing that account over time. Cool. So at what point do you make the decision to leave this winery that you're at? So you're at the third year um, what was the tipping point to go? It was a really hard decision. I was I was also really depressed. Um, <laughs> like in twenties, um, <laughs> I 
I was getting to the point that I wasn't I wasn't sure that I actually wanted to do this because I was seeing the reality of how like what a long slog it was going to be to get to the the point that I wanted to be at. So I left my full time job mostly because I was like, I don't even know if I'm going to stay in one. Um, But after I had been away from it every day in the cellar work like it can be very grueling like number one it's freezing in the cellar so like working in a super cold place is difficult and also I worked alone most days so spending those eight hours both cold and alone it was just like it wasn't (laughs) the best um so after some time away from that I realized that I I could get basically any part-time job that I wanted and I would be well qualified because I had something to show for like my life I felt for the first time ever where I could be like I own a wine label but like I also need a side gig instead of how I approached things before which was like please hire me like take me (laughs) just like a lot less desperate and having that confidence allowed me to get like this a long series of part-time jobs, which was how I financed my life for um, the next four years after leaving my my full-time job. So I did I did all kinds of things. I like worked as a yard duty at ele- elementary school. I did some like um, surveying for my landlord, who's an engineer. Like I just got to hold the stick that has the prism for the laser on it. <laughs> like doesn't take a lot of skill. Um, I did a ton of house sitting and pet sitting and babysitting. And then I ended up getting a job as a, um, a private investigator, which was the best one because it was a home phone job. And that was like, I struck gold with that. Just found it on Craigslist. You could do it anytime you wanted on your own hours. And you know, you're just an independent contractor, no taxed. Um, and like, yeah. And it was pretty well paid. It was 20 bucks an hour, which at the time I was like, this is perfect. Um, So I did that for years and years. And that was my last part-time job that I quit when I started paying myself a living salary in uh, May of 2021. Oh, my God. Megan Bell, winemaker and PI. (laughs) Yes. I think you should do a one-off label. (laughs) Okay, so... You did what you had to do, and sounds like you did a lot of interesting things during that time, and you were just focusing, you know, on building margins as a brand. So obviously that first, the very first time I tasted you wine, it was the first vintage, and it was just Shannon. And I think the second year was just Shannon too, or did you do... Sangiovese. Sangiovese. Yeah. And now, I mean, you know, you have quite a few different SKUs, so you were just kind of like building the layers throughout those those years of bringing in more wine? Yeah. Right when I was leaving my full-time winery job was when um, I had gotten picked up by my first distributor, Amy Atwood, <laughs> in, in L.A. And, of course, that's a huge turning point, um, not only to have distribution, but to, to be in a distributor's book who's so influential in the realm that you're wanting to be important in. And in that beginning part, like, I really credit pretty much all of my success to Amy and her team Um, because I couldn't sell it myself. Like, I worked full time and also, like, that's not my personality. I just, I would never be able to do it. And I don't really like doing stuff like that. Um, So I really wanted wanted a distributor. Um, And then the next state I wanted to open was New York. So I had done this you know, quote unquote business trip where I just took some time off my, my full-time winery job and went to New York and met with a bunch of distributors. And when I got back, I had, um, at least one offer. And that was when I realized like, oh, things are happening. Like I'm not going to be able to do a good job at my full-time job anymore because this thing is going to move really fast. Um, and I want it to move fast and, In order to make it happen, I'm going to need to put all my time into it. And it's going to be a big lifestyle change. (laughs) But this is what I need to do right now. Because I'm never going to forgive myself if I don't take this risk. Uh, I'll always regret not trying it. Um, But uh, 
I am also the kind of person that I like thing I like nice things, but I can live with nothing. So with during that four years, like I paid myself like between three hundred and a thousand dollars a month from my business, and then I you know collected the part time jobs money. I was on food stamps for like three years, and then my business pays for gas since I'm always driving for work, and then I bought nothing. So I just paid for rent. Um, and obviously, I had free health care with Cover California because I made like $10,000 a year. <laughs> um, and I just, yeah, saved all the money in the margins account and put that money um, toward buying more and more grapes every year. So, yeah, that first, that second year, I just had Shannon Sangiovese. The next year, there was like also Muved um, and Muscat. And then the next year, there was more. And then pretty pretty soon it was like people would call me asking me if I wanted their grapes which that was the first time I was like oh things have changed <laughs> like it's not like the beginning of me being like take me um please let me have your grapes it's like someone wants to work with me wow um and that kind of thing still remains a surprise to me I like which I think is an important part of of having the business of not thinking you deserve anything um, and just still putting your all into what you do because when you start thinking you deserve something for some reason like everything sort of crumbles because um, uh, you take the people around you for granted and you're not putting as much time and effort into your your thing so I I still feel very focused on on that part of what I do um, and now I make like I make like 21 different wines with about 15 different grapes. Wow. <laughs> and I work with 11 different vineyards every year. So things have just grown so much. Um, but kind of the beauty of being in this part of the wine industry is that you can see things years in advance. If, if you enjoy budget, and of course I do, because I love spreadsheets and stuff. So if you're looking at everything and everything... And you can forecast really accurately, which is what kept me sane during the years where I was like leaving my house in the morning to go, you know, to the winery and then work a bunch of part time jobs. One of them was in a restaurant. So leaving at 8 a.m. and getting back at 11 p.m. after a restaurant and um, never having time for yourself and also not having any money. I was like. In two and a half years, I can see from this spreadsheet that I'm going to make really good money if, like, we can just follow this plan. I'm impressed. Uh, <laughs> spreadsheets are okay as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay, so let's, like, dive in a little bit to the vineyard side of your life because I feel like you are more involved than a lot of you know, natural winemakers when it comes to actually farming. Because, you know, let's face it, California, like, the real estate's so expensive. Most mm -hmm. of the winemakers that I work with don't own their vineyards, so they're not necessarily farming um, the vines. I mean, some have leases and things like that. Uh, so how did you really become involved? Because I know you've been really influential in a lot of vineyards and, and you know, like David, making him go organic and things like that. <laughs> like, how how big is that a part of your your life? Um, that was a really big, big part of margins during like those middle really hard years of getting established. Like, I don't think any of the vineyards I worked with were officially organic to like year four, but we were on that track and it was just taking a long time to get there as all things in agriculture do. They take a long time. Um, so any vineyard I worked with that wasn't organic, I would not necessarily tell the owners that I was going to ask them to do this but I would start working with them and like develop a relationship with them pay them on time most importantly uh, and also just be a nice person to them to work with um, and then when I would pose the question it made them more likely to um, oblige uh, but like for example, the Muvad and Kunwa's vineyard I work with, I met them in 2018, I think, and we didn't become fully organic till 2021. So that took years and years, but we were on this track together um, and we just needed the time to get there. 
Um, and then like David, when we first, when I first asked him, he was the first person I asked, he said no. And I was like, oh, well, I guess we're not working together anymore. And he's like, okay. Um, because he is just the vineyard manager for, you know, thousands of acres for an old family, fifth generation family company. And he doesn't really have the power to make decisions. Uh, but then he talked to the, his uncle, the CEO, and like six months later, he's like, hey, we're going to do block just block 20 of Chenin Blanc organic conversion um, for you, but also as like a pilot project for our company. Um, and that has been extremely successful for them. So they farmed that a, a thousand acres, but only that 20 acres is organic for now. But the more that this you know, they get more money when they farm organically. The vines are health, way healthier. They're getting good yields, um, depending on, you know, different factors during the year. Um, and most importantly, also, they're getting super well known because they're on the labels of all these natural wine folks. Um, and those are the wines that are in restaurants all over, you know, the big wine drinking cities and People are like, oh, have you? I also work with Wilson Vineyard. Whereas before they were just selling, you know, grapes in bulk that were getting blended into like California blends. No one knew mm -hmm. about them. And I think that really means a lot to growers to have like all that time and energy they're putting into their project of farming their land to, to be recognized that way. Um, so it's like, it's kind of a team effort. But I would say that. Like people are much more willing to do that with you if if you explain to them why you want that, like why it matters to you, not for your business, but why it matters to actually you um, and like make commitments to them that you don't break. And that's how I've done it. And now all the vineyards I work with are organic and I don't have to do this thing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Global warming, climate change, it's affecting everything, obviously, but it is a huge thing that comes up a lot in these podcasts, you know, with winemaking. Uh, and I think particularly, you know, you've had some experiences with the wildfires in California. This, How has this challenge affected you personally with your business? Um, so I, I farm a two-acre vineyard in the Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, with the owner who's in his early 70s and he and I do all the work together we don't bring in a crew at all except um, folks to come help pick during harvest so the like actual vineyard labor is done by the two of us um, so I feel like I have a very first-hand view of how things have changed just in the four years that I have farmed that vineyard um, it's it's really different like Santa Cruz is a place that gets some of the heaviest rainfall in California historically. And we never had to irrigate in the vineyards. And now we have to irrigate because it barely, <laughs> barely rains for, for Santa Cruz. Uh, and we have super sandy soils in a lot of places, so it doesn't hold water very well. Um, so it, it really relies on like consistent winter and spring rain for, you know, your quote unquote natural irrigation. Um, but now, now we irrigate. So that feels very significant to me. Um, and then during 2020, the neighborhood I live in was uh, on fire in Bonnie Dune. And um, more than a thousand homes burned down in my neighborhood. Um, and I was evacuated for seven weeks during harvest. And that's what the movie's about. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that felt very close to me. Um, just like especially during that time like the end of 2020 like I said before like my projection for being like quote-unquote successful was spring of 2021 and like everything felt so close and then I was like oh god this house that I love like I live in an amazing place on I obviously don't own it but I live on 30 acres of redwoods and living there is really important to me and good for my mental health and everything. And, um, the prospect of that not being there anymore was just devastating. Uh, and also there's a bunch of vineyards in my neighborhood 
that I used to work with when I worked at the other winery full time. And that was making my heart hurt to know that those vines could be on fire at that moment. And I didn't know. Um, and then just like, you know, all the beautiful forest creatures not being there anymore. Oh, it was just like very, very sad because all of those things tie into like the health of the vineyard too. Like it really relies on, you know, the local flora and fauna <laughs> and all of that is affected in a big circular cycle um, when, when you lose something. So that fear feels very present still. The vineyard was far away enough from the fires in Santa Cruz where we still picked everything that year and the wines were good. They weren't perfect, but like they worked out all right. But I think everyone was just feeling like quite defeated. And now during harvest, there's that constant fear having actually experienced it already. Thinking like, can I go through that again? I don't know. And like, if I go through that again, am I going to want to keep doing this? Like the wine industry feels so close to climate change and so on the verge of collapse. <laughs> um, so the level of hope that you have to have, I think, to stay doing what we're doing, actually being a farmer, um, not just a winemaker, but being on the farming side and you know, knowing your growers and seeing what they're going through and talking to them about it. Um, everyone just has their fingers like constantly crossed. Yeah, I think you told me before that you like literally had to like get in a truck and like lie to the for the <laughs> firefighters to like get up to the vineyard or something. <laughs> Yeah, that was in 2020, trying to pick the Sangiovese. Um, that was a different fire in 2020. That was the Dolan fire on the back of Big Sur and Los Padres. Um, the vineyard in Arroyo Seco, that whole area was evacuated, but it wasn't like the fire was, like, right there. It was just evac evacuation <laughs> level, but not like you might burn alive level. So I was like, okay, we're going, and all the roads are blocked by you know, police. And I was just like, hey, I'm helping my aunt evacuate her farm. That's why I have this giant trailer. Um, and we were able to get in uh, that night. Um, and then the next day we picked just just the four of us because we couldn't get a crew in there because all the roads were blocked. So we just had the owner and me and my partner and one of her friends. Uh, we picked all day in the smoky air, but at least it wasn't sunny, you know? like oh great a nice smoky cloud cover <laughs> um the perks you know um and then we made that wine and it wasn't the wine I wanted to make but we made the wine she got paid which was really important to me um and you know we made it work with, with what we had <laughs> I mean you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do do you think there's anything you know farmers in general or or winemakers can do to mitigate climate change is is there any hope for that um i feel like the the biggest thing people can do it's going to be like what the consumers demand so like if people are constantly asking like is this farmed organically when they're ordering a bottle at a restaurant um or even at the grocery store even if it's a chain grocery store like there's still there's still wine buyers there just be like i'm work i'm looking for or organically farmed grapes and they'll probably say like we don't have that here and then you can be like oh, okay well that's all I buy you know the more that that happens and there's like an insistence from the market um that's gonna be the only way to make real change because no one's going to no business is gonna do something that's more expensive uh if they don't have to who's like run by a bunch of like shit people you know <laughs> people people who care about the planet are gonna make these more expensive decisions anyway but when it's just ruled by like a corporation and there's really no one person to blame they're just gonna keep doing what they've always been doing uh, unless they have a reason to change and the consumers need to be that reason you hear that everybody <laughs> uh so besides um, farming practices and winemaking practices, you know, something I feel like a lot of people don't talk about in this industry um, 
is the operation side. You know, is there anything that you're doing or that could be done as far as shipping, packaging, you know, something to make that process more eco-friendly and responsible? Yeah, you know, there's we've definitely talked about this amongst ourselves, um, myself and other people that make wine, like how great it would be if we just had a few plants around California where glass wine bottles could get returned to and washed and sanitized and then repackaged for use. Like this, this is done with all kinds of other products, but it's not done with wine. And it's, it's such a bummer. It would require a lot of investment money and a lot of infrastructure, but like that definitely doesn't mean that it's not possible. I'm sure this is something that will happen down the road, but I see that as like the worst part of, of what I do is, bringing in glass from other countries, whether it's, you know, uh, Canada or Mexico or China uh, or like Central Europe. Uh, It's coming so far. And obviously, that's a horrible thing to think about. And then once it hits the U.S., it usually comes from the East Coast. So it's going across the country and then it gets here. People drink it and then it just goes to the recycling and then I have to just like keep buying the new glass every year. And like there's going to be a lot of people lobbying against, you know, sanitation plants like this because the glass people are going to become obsolete if we just have the glass that exists now and just keep reusing it. But that's really what needs to happen. And some brilliant person with a ton of investment money will come and do that at some point. But it's not going to be the winemakers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you hear that, Silicon Valley? <laughs> but they, yeah, it would be an amazing business venture. They would make good money, I think. It would be a good a good business. Okay. We'll, we'll think about that. So, um, fun question. Not that you don't love your given family, but uh, if you could be born into any wine family, what what winery would that be okay i don't actually know what the winery is called but randomly in 2014 um i was doing couch surfing in france from like the couch surfing website (laughs) and uh i stayed with this guy who worked in a tupperware factory but his roommate (laughs) was from a winemaking family in cassis uh in in uh southern france and provence right on the mediterranean um and i got to stay in like their vineyard castle house which is just (laughs) where they all all these young people lived um and he didn't speak any english so i never actually got the name of the winery but like getting to be born in a family where you just get to live in provence (laughs) forever and you're in your free stone villa that that sounds ideal to me. So you guys didn't speak the language, but there was some sort of language being spoken <laughs> <laughs> that spoke to you. <laughs> yes. Okay. So what's next? Where where do you see yourself going in the next five years, ten years? Um, I don't. I don't really know, but the thing that I'm I try not to plan too far in advance. Um, but the thing that I'm doing now is working on opening a tasting room um, in Santa Cruz proper. And I've had the lease on that since August, um, but it takes a very long time to permit alcohol with the city. Um, So it's just sitting there. It's an empty closet, and I'll just be paying for it for however long it takes. Um, It's really small. It's it's like a closet, Um, 120 square feet. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) But it'll be magical. The good thing about such a small space is that you can really go big on the architecture and like the decor because you know tiny space so I'm hoping it's a place that people will want to come to and that'll increase my presence in the local community more and it will help mitigate the thing that you were just getting out of like I ship a ton of wine across the country and I would love if I had just more local pickups happening Um, just you know more of a European model of like oh we get our wine from this vineyard that's like right next to our house and this is in a residential area where most of Santa Cruz lives so hopefully it'll be a place where people just like swing by on their way home from work and grab a bottle or two Um, and that should be a really important part of 
this financial sustainability of this business, which is really, really wonky. And, and people don't talk about that a lot, but um, the, the financial side of this is not good. <laughs> and relying on um, only distribution is very dangerous for your business because the market is changing all the time. So like, um, like you... And you're a year behind because you make your wine a year before it comes out. So if all of a sudden this happened last year, people don't want to drink single varietal Pinot Noir anymore, then you're kind of screwed. <laughs> um, if that's not what people are like buying in restaurants. But if you just have it in your wine shop uh, that you own and then people can come and taste and be like, oh, it's so good. I'm going to get a bottle. Then you have a bit more. Um, you know, reliability of being able to sell things. So that's what I'll be working on for the next couple of years. Okay. I can't wait to go visit 120 square <laughs> feet. That's like a little micro tasting room. It sounds really cool. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Megan. And trust me when I say that you are very worthy of all the things. And uh, I can't wait to talk again and, and see all the fun things that uh, you cook up. Yeah, thanks, Coley, and thank you to everyone who listened. Really appreciate it. Wine splaining.